uh, Skullboys. The Street Press Podcast with Sean Fraser. For a start, there are not enough white men doing podcasts. I've got to always support that when that comes along. I was talking to a mate today at a baby queue. We didn't cook a baby. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that yeah. was. I just want to thank you. Yeah, no, it was me. He wouldn't shake our hand until he finished putting on his glove. Imagine what he's like during the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Well, I got you here for the podcast after your big night last oh. night, so I'm stoked with that. I get a thrill knowing that you're doing what you're doing. That's good. Well, I don't know what I'm doing today. We're just sort of just winging it. Did you moon Kylie Minogue? Yeah. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Street Press Podcast. My name is Sean Fraser. It's great to have you here this Wednesday. Who knows, you might be listening on another day than that, but don't forget these episodes drop on a Wednesday. Today, really special guest, Frank Turner, all the way from England. Uh, I've been listening to Frank Turner for, shit, probably 15 years now. Um, Always loved his songwriting, loved his style, and he's always got these very raw, honest lyrics um, and I've been keeping tabs on his career for a very long time, so I'm really stoked that uh, we've got him on the show this week. And before I tell you sort of uh, or tease you with what we've got coming up, I do <laughs> I do have this story about uh, going to one of his gigs once. Um, basically, I teed up this big night out with my work colleagues. We were all going to go and hit the town and, um, you know, get blotto, basically, I'll bring that word back. Um, it's not used enough. Anyways, back to the story. We uh, we went to the King's Cross Hotel. I think it was around Christmas time, so it was like some Christmas party do or something like that. And um, hanging out, having a couple of beers with the colleagues. We've been drumming this thing up for a little while. And uh, as I'm sitting there at the bar, I get a text message from my brother Nathan, and he's like, "Oi, Frank Turner's playing at the Metro tonight. You got to come." And I was like. But I've just teed up this thing. So I, uh, I ha- I'm stuck with two decisions. Do I hang out with the colleagues? We've been pumping this thing for a while. We've been looking forward to this. Or do I go and see Frank Turner? The show's going to be finished soon. I've probably missed half of it. And, um, yeah, I told the colleagues I've got to go. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, uh, I legged it. Left the hotel straight away in a cab. I uh, got to the Metro and I watched uh, Frank Turner play his last four songs. So I paid 70 bucks and uh, and I got four songs, but still cracking four songs. Anyways, <laughs> Frank Turner is on the show. We're going to have you on soon. This interview almost didn't happen. I'm so glad it did happen, but uh, we had to reschedule. Um, and, and obviously he's coming out to Australia in like two weeks' time, and he's playing a bunch of shows. He's going to be playing some with the, uh, the Counting Crows. Yeah, he's coming out solo, but uh, it was really good that I got to uh, sit down with him and uh, and have a chat, obviously, through Zoom. We spoke about him being a road warrior all those uh, all those years ago. All he wanted was 50 quid and a place to stay. That's all he asked for. We talk about his early tour. When he was 16 years of age, he was on the road, hitting the trains, driving around in a, in a, in a van. We talk about his big musical influences. He loves Johnny Cash and Bruce Springsteen. We talk about what his friends used to think of his really heavy band. Uh, not everyone was a, was a big fan, although they had quite a big following. And Frank decided that, uh, well, I think the band just broke up and he picked up the acoustic and... Uh, He's been playing it ever since. And we talk about playing in front of a quarter of a million people. Uh, Frank got the opportunity, once in a lifetime opportunity really, to play at the London Olympics. There he was on stage. I remember it vividly, standing on this big grassy hill 
and there were sheep all around him. And he was <laughs> he was singing some songs. All right, let's bring him on. This is my interview with Frank Turner. 10 o'clock over there in the morning. Uh, yes, indeed. What, what time, where are you guys? What time are you, what time are you at? So I'm uh, an hour north of Sydney, so it's 9 p.m. Man, am I not looking forward to the jet lag when I come over. It's been a, it's been a, been a few years since I uh, went through that particular punishment beating. It's wild. 24 hours, isn't it? Something like that. Well, if you're starting a tour in the South Island of New Zealand as I am, my flight schedule is more like 36 hours. Um, and uh, it's a 11 hour time zone change when I get to the other end. It's just kind of the thing is, like from past experience, actually, in a funny way, starting in New Zealand's better because you're so completely screwed by the time you get there. Your body <laughs> just goes, I don't know, man, you tell me. Like, are we awake? Are we asleep? Like, take the lead. Do you know what I mean? How much time do you give yourself before you're on stage, you know, when you do a flight like that? Well, I mean, it's a funny one because for the same reason, like when we fly, say, to America, if there's like a five-hour time zone change or something, we generally have like an acclimatization day. It's still going to be rough, but like okay. I can't I, I can't really like afford to, you know, um, do more than a one the one day kind of thing. When it comes to Australia and New Zealand, like particularly this next trip is just me and my tour manager coming together. And, and we were just both like, fuck it, man. It's just going to be um, like insane, however it is. So uh, we are landing one day and playing a show the following day. Wow. Yeah, that's that's some massive jet lag. You, you look forward to the solo shows? I know you play with the band quite a bit. I do. I mean, obviously, I mean, I've started this interview by just moaning endlessly, which I really shouldn't do. Um, I'm extremely stoked uh, to be coming back to your part of the world. Uh, yeah, coming solo this time because it's, uh, you know, obviously I'm opening for Cat and Crows, who are one of my very favorite bands and old friends at this point as well, which is great. Um, and yeah, it's kind of fun. I look forward to, it's a nice change up doing the solo thing. Um, doing the support thing's kind of fun as well. You know, you've got a kind of limited amount of time to impress a room full of people, most of whom sort of initially don't give a shit. And, um, <laughs> I've done a lot of that over the years and, uh, in some ways that's kind of how I made my bones as an artist really was going out and, and playing before other people. So yeah, it's going to be fun. I mean, one of the things I'm dancing around in this interview is uh, a thing that I'm not allowed to say out loud, but I'm just going to say that maybe, maybe after doing a support tour, I would then do a headline tour. Oh, how good. In any given territory of the world. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. I'm looking forward to uh, finding out when that's going to be or if that's going to be. Yeah, you were talking about obviously the early days. And um, did I, re- I read somewhere you were... You were touring at the age of 16. When you look back on those times, it's pretty, pretty wild. <laughs> well, that particularly that first tour was, I mean, I could write a book about that tour. It was, uh, if I could remember more of it, I suppose. It was a very long time ago now. Um, it, I'm, I'm kind of, there's a little part of me that's proud that I just about toured in the 90s. Um, yep. and, and I toured before sat-nav, email, mostly <laughs> mobile phones, Um you know, and like, I mean, one of the stories I always tell about the tour, which was pretty funny, when we were leaving for the tour, because like me, it was two bands in a van and we were pretty much all 16 and we had this 18-year-old guy driving the van because he was old enough to drive the van yeah. and we just kind of like found him on a, like a, 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 not an internet, but a literal like rehearsal message board or something. I can't really remember. But um, we were driving around and like, you know, we you've got to 
fucking road atlas you know what i mean and um uh, some of the places we're going we're not going to be marked on road atlases like there were quite a few squat shows on that tour and um i remember as we kind of left a f- an older friend of ours said if you get to uh, a town I-, I can hear your dog yeah um, he's going you- nuts <laughs> it's all good if you get to a town and you can't find the venue drive to the shit end of town and ask someone who's wearing a leather jacket and right. um and we did in Leeds and it fucking worked. <laughs> so, yeah. But I mean, like we, I mean, there was some, there's one show we turned up, we turned up in the venue, had never heard of us and had no idea there was supposed yeah. to be a show happening that night. Um, and then we did some shows where we jumped on bills of other people. Um, you know, I seem to remember it was a kind of tour where like 40 people was like, wow, it's rammed in here. Um, so, but it was cool. We were kids. We all got the flu towards the end. Um, and everybody, we lost quite a lot of money, uh, comparatively. I remember at the end of the tour, like <laughs> sort of everyone had to chip in some cash to like cover costs, uh, which was like, I mean, like 20 quid each or something, but it was like, oh, okay. Uh, but you know, um, when we got home, it was funny. There was shitloads of us in the van, two bands. Uh, and this driver guy and like half of us were like and, and a bunch of friends who kind of tagged along half of us were like i'm never ever doing that again that was a nightmare and it was awful in every way and the other half of us were kind of like when can i do, do this do again, again please yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. so <laughs> it was an interesting moment we we talk about that when you were, when you were that young, and then I looked on your Instagram uh, not too long ago, and I see that someone's got a portrait of you on their shoulder or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just wild. Yeah. What do you what do you got to say about that portrait when you see someone doing that? Uh, I mean, it's a difficult thing to talk about in some ways. I mean, ultimately, the guy sent me a really lovely email. First of all, showing me the piece, and secondly, he had some quite. Um, intense personal reasons for getting it done, which I don't feel are necessarily mine okay. to share. But it wasn't just like, hey, I like that band, I got a tattoo. There was a bit more to it than that. But um, I mean, it's a difficult one. But like, I mean, the portrait's kind of at the extreme end of this, but any kind of tattoos related to my music, I don't quite know what to do with that information initially. But then, I mean, ultimately, I have tons of music-related tattoos. I'm mm. covered in them. I guess the, pro- the thing is I don't naturally hold myself in the same regard as I would hold Black Flag or Townsend's or the weaker hands or whatever do you know what i mean it's like yeah it's it's difficult and i hope it remains difficult for me to to put myself in that category yeah i don't want that to be an easy thing for me to do do you know what i mean yeah. um, but i mean with that with that particular piece i mean it's a really really well done tattoo it looks exactly like you <laughs> yeah do you know what i mean and like and it makes me kind of want to uh uh, it kind it of, this is a strange thing to say, and it's going to take me a second to hone in on exactly what I mean. But it's like, I kind of see that and like initially sort of made a joke to my friends being like, man, ooh, uh, you know, I've got a bit, I've got to like, um, not get cancelled or, you know, not go down with something dumb now. Do you know what I mean? To keep that guy's arm intact. And not that I think that that's likely to happen or is going to happen or anything like that. But like, in a funny way, actually, like, I don't want to be beholden to people that I don't know. That's not quite what I mean. But it's like, it's kind of nice to sort of, to uh, to understand that you represent something somebody and then to kind of think, okay, well, there's something to keep doing with your life. Do you know what I mean? To kind of try and maintain that. Um, I mean, you know, I, I, I viciously defend my artistic freedom of action at all times from all com- from all comers, but it, it's not just about that that piece. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's 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 about something else as well. I've heard you talk about um, not wanting to glamorize the early days of you know being on tour and whatnot because it was bloody hard slog. You were you're on trains, you were in vans and stuff. How much has it changed for you, um, say from then to now? <clears throat> 
Oh, it's changed a lot for me. I mean, um, I mean, there's there's something to glamorize there, but like it, it was hard. It's also I, I always feel really it's really important for me to point out that like uh, both then and now, I was aware that like it, there was a degree of privilege involved in going out and doing that. You know, like I had a, a mum and well, a mum who would like put me up if everything went to shit. Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. I slept on the floor in bars and stuff like that for years, or didn't have my own place or whatever it might be. But there was at least sort of hypothetically there was a safety net in there, and that's the privilege that not everybody has and I do recognize that um, I had a lot of fun it was cool I mean um, it was a thing that I could do the main thing that's changed is that I am no longer in my 20s um, and like everything sucks more than it used to and like it just uh, you, you, you know what I'm talking about <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, and it just yeah. sort of gets progressively harder it's mainly a physical thing do you know what I mean it's like I can't really sleep on the floor with I used to sleep on the floor all the time and it's like um it really hurts my back these days. Do you know what I mean? It's a very unpunk thing to say. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, also, I mean, at this point in my life, it's like, you know, I full-time employ 12 people in my touring crew. Do you know what I mean? And like yeah. um, that, which I love and which I'm extremely proud of, I might add. Um, but at the same time, there's a certain degree of like organization that comes with running that many people. It's not quite like, fuck it, get on the train, like play in a mm. squat. Do you know what I mean? It's more organized, more regimented than that. We have things like carnets and visas and, <laughs> you know, uh, whatever to go overseas. And, and um we have a, an iCal that we all share to discuss what dates come in, you know, yeah. whatever it might be. Very grown-up things. Yeah, it's not quite as ragged, but I mean, ultimately, you know, uh, like I say, I am proud of the fact that it's kind of a it's a, uh, a small business that I run that it employs some people, and a lot of people raise their families off working with me, and I think that's a cool thing. Um, uh, and, you know, ultimately, I'm not sure that I could sustain being quite as anarchic as I was when I was a kid forever. And and those spaces, I mean, I thought at the beginning of this, you were going to ask me, like, you know, how's the touring world changed at that level? And the answer is, I don't really know. And it would be pretentious of me to claim that I did. Having said that, like, I think it, you know, whenever we're discussing this, it's like uh, uh, me no longer doing that kind of anarchic touring, among other things, clears the space for other people to do it. You know, if there's other people out there who want to do that stuff, have at it, do it. You've got 12 people in your crew. Obviously, with that comes a bit of pressure as well, I suppose, for the tours to succeed. Does that put you off a little bit? I mean, I've always had the fortune to be flexible in what I do in the sense that we're talking about this tour we're doing right now. There's no way that I can afford to bring my whole band over for a tour of New Zealand Australia when we're not headlining. I just, I, It's just not possible and there's no... <laughs> bank or big record label or whatever that's going to shell out money to make that happen so and I, and I know that for some bands it's like well we then can't do that and that's legitimate but like i can just grab my guitar and go um i'm actually being a little bit kind of luxuriant by bringing my tour manager with me i could do yeah. it on my own but like um i fucking love him he's one of my best friends so <laughs> we're gonna go and uh we're gonna go and get drunk in australia and watch Cat and crows and cry uh, it's gonna be awesome <laughs> um uh but um but yeah so i mean it does i mean you know the, we had a we had a thing uh in 2021 when we were doing kind of like well no early 2022 when we were doing kind of like the first venture back into europe touring again in the post pandemic world and we ended up having to kind of sack off the last couple of shows which were in austria and, and the reason that we had to do that is because ticket sales have been pretty bad because austria was still kind of locked down um and i was looking to lose like fifty thousand euros doing it and i just don't i don't have fifty thousand euros do you know what i mean contrary to what you know some of the denizens of twitter seem to think like i, I just don't particularly after the last couple of years of, the, of covid and all the rest of it it's i just can't 
lose yeah. that money. I mean, someone's got to pay my band and my crew, and, and it's me. Um, so you know, and, and we, 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 you know, with, since then we've kind of worked to restitute that and all the rest of it. But it's, um, I did, it's a funny thing. Like certainly up to a certain point in history, which I caught a bit of. A lot of people who were sort of not working in the music industry had this idea that like if you were a band who played to a bunch of people then you were rich do you know what i mean and it's kind of like ah well maybe maybe not kind of thing do you know what i mean and like i remember the first time i ever had a song on the radio that night uh that was when i was in my old band and they did that night i was in a bar and some dude just knew i was and went buy me a drink you've been on the radio and it's like i'm sleeping <laughs> on a sofa in a hallway right now motherfucker <laughs> Um, do you know what I mean? <laughs> hey, it's the same thing for me. I work in radio and people think I've got a lot of money just because. It's a, yeah, it's a strange thing. I mean, I do think that I said that up to a certain point in history. I do think that like people, one of the, one of the positives of the internet is it has kind of like kind of leveled the playing field a little bit. I think that people are a little bit more aware of, of what the reality of being kind of like a, a mid-level artist or however you want to describe yeah. what I do uh, is. And, 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 you know, that sometimes that, that can be a relief. Hey, uh, you were talking earlier about sleeping on floors and all that sort of stuff. And a lot of your early stuff was about um, that sort of stuff. How has the songwriting changed over the years? You've been doing this a long time now. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to think it's got better, um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, with, with practice. I mean, obviously, that's not quite how songwriting conceptually works, you know what I mean? Um, I think that it's funny. Like, they're, they're, this is an old sore, but there's kind of an inspiration part and a perspiration part, as they say. Um, and, like, when you're young and you first kind of find your stride as a songwriter, the inspiration part's easier because you haven't written any songs yet, which means that you just reach out and find all the low-hanging fruit of things that you have to say and all the rest. Um, but then sometimes the other side, the kind of, but the other way to describe this is art versus craft. You know, the craft side, the, the hammering that initial spark into a song is harder when you're young because you don't quite know what you're doing, um, you know, and sometimes that can be exciting, but sometimes it means that you go around the houses to find something that's actually quite obvious or whatever it might be. At this point in my life, kind of finding my subject matter, finding my initial sparking off for a song can take longer because I've written a lot and I don't want to repeat myself if possible. Um, but once once uh, that kind of original idea has landed, it's easier for me to then turn that into a finished song. Having said all of that, the other thing is that, like, for a long time, I kind of resisted what I'm about to say, but I do ultimately think it's true. You can work at the inspiration part of songwriting. You can't, not in this kind of, like, production line methodological way but you can sort of practice being in the way of ideas do you know what i mean this is, that sounds really vague but it's like i find like as i get older that like you you can put yourself in certain mindsets you do things like just trying to write a, a bunch of stuff every day or whatever there are ways of kind of like kickstarting that side of things but i mean ultimately i hope it's changed in the sense that i want to grow and develop as an artist and i don't want to repeat myself i don't want to make the same record over and over again or whatever. Uh, but it, it's for other people to judge in the final analysis. Do you still get that fire when you pick up the guitar or you move over to the piano and, you you know, you haven't even thought of a word yet, you haven't even thought of a chord yet? Do you still have that that fire? Some days. Uh, I mean, some days I pick up a guitar and I just go, I've played every single fucking chord <laughs> in, in this thing. <laughs> and then, but then the glorious thing is some days you pick up a guitar and you just play like D, A and G and you go, oh, wow, I've just found a new song. And, and in many ways, the kind of idiom that I work in, which is broadly speaking, rock and roll songwriting with a, maybe a dash of folk music, if we're going to be pretentious, is about finding kind of like at least charismatic and idiosyncratic roots through pretty familiar territory. 
you know, I'm working on a new record right now. We're kind of we're rehearsing songs that I've written, and like there's one song that's just got the most basic chords in it, and it feels totally new to me because it's it it came to me very very easily. Just one day, I just kind of went bam, but but oh, there it is. There's a fucking song, um, and. You know, and that's, you know, when you, sometimes you find yourself kind of knee deep in kind of like modulating flat fifth chords and shit, because you're trying not to do something generic. And then you go, what the, f- what are we doing? <laughs> do you know what I mean? So it, it changes. You know, they always say that the best songs are the, the most simple songs. You really test that theory out. Uh, you know what? I've actually the, the, I've got a new one for me. There's a song on my new record, which uh, the verse has one chord. Wow. Um, and, and, and I kind of, I slightly dared myself to do it, yeah. <laughs> if you know what I mean. I mean, I don't want to be quite that kind of like arch about my own songwriting, but like, uh, it sort of came together like that. And, uh, uh, initially, like, I was like, I don't know if this is like the best or the worst thing I've ever done. And then we got into rehearsal the other day and tried it out and it was really good. So, uh, it is, uh, ambitious sort of like doing that, playing that one chord and trying to think of something entertaining over the top of the vocal. I mean, that's not an easy right. thing to do. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, the, we're, what we're chasing is, is in the broader sense of the term, is hooks. Do you know what I mean? And that doesn't necessarily have to involve, you know, there, whilst this is very much the tradition I inhabit, there are, you know, kind of four, three slash four blocky chords and over the space of like eight bars or whatever yeah. is, is pretty, it's pretty done at this point. I mean, I'm still doing it and so are lots of other people, but getting, getting away from that is, is not a terrible idea. You're talking about the Cannon Crows. You're a big fan. Huge. Yeah, and uh, who else we got there? You've got uh, Johnny Cash. You love a bit of Johnny Cash. Love a bit of Bruce Springsteen. And it's nice to see the the mix that you've got of, of you know, the, the ones that you're really inspired by or influenced by. Um, is that important, you think, to have so many different types of influences? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, you know, the other, the, all of that stuff is sort of one of my two major poles, if you like, and the other one would be, you know, Black Flag, Descendants, no effects, all that kind of territory as well. And like, I mean, there's an argument to be made that like, I'm just sort of generally trying to smush Cat and Crows into Black Flag, and that's what I've been doing for my whole career. <laughs> Does it work? Who knows? But um, like, I do think it's important to try and listen widely. And like, like anybody, I get stuck in certain kind of listening habits, and I go through phases where I don't listen to anything much of anything, you know. Um, but uh, you know, it's cool to push yourself outside of your envelope. Um, uh, I've been on a bit of an early grindcore trip lately, actually. Grindcore? Yeah, I love a lot of grindcore. So I've been kind of going back and listening to like Possessed and Repulsion and, and early Napalm and stuff like that lately. When we talk about when you first started The Boon Dead and becoming Frank Turner, such a difference. <laughs> <laughs> such a difference um, mm. between the styles. Uh, what were your friends saying around that point? You were in this heavy band <laughs> and then all of a sudden you just picked up the acoustic and said, oh, I do this now. Well, well, it's a funny thing to look back on because, like, at the time, I mean, I'd done a handful of solo shows while I was still in that band kind of for charity gigs and stuff like that, which was just kind of a bit of fun and everybody kind of regarded it as this sort of idiosyncrasy of mine or whatever. Um, And then the band broke up and I kind of announced to the world that that's what I was going to do. And, like, I had this one particular kind of new group of people I was starting to hang out with at a bar called Nambuka that was kind of a folk music bar who all hated Million Dead and they liked my little acoustic <laughs> songs I did. And they all were like, hey, dude, you should do those songs. And that's kind of, and I followed their advice and good advice it turned out to be. And that bar was really cool. It gave rise to a lot of music like um, Laura Marling, Jamie T, Mumford & Sons, Vaccines, like there was all the Holloways, all these cool bands kind of started around that bar kind of thing at around that period of time. So I was very lucky to be 
in that place and at that time. But for, for a lot of my other friends, um, I think a lot of people thought I was having some kind of like prolonged kind of manic episode, <laughs> possibly. Um, but I mean, the, the easiest way of putting it, which I find kind of interesting, is like at the time I was convinced I had a plan and everybody else thought I was nuts. And now, because of the way everything has gone, everybody looks back and thinks I must have had a plan. And I look back and think I must have been nuts mm-hmm. because it doesn't make a huge amount of sense in <laughs> retrospect. And uh, and in, in a way, I'm kind of proud because what I did was I followed my artistic drive in a quite a pure way. Do you know what I mean? I, we, the last Million Dead show, tour, we were playing at like 800 people a show. And then my first solo tour, I was playing like three people a show. Like nobody fucking cared, like at all. And I was, and everyone was, I got asked to join a couple of existing kind of hardcore bands and stuff. And I turned them down and I just kind of pursued this thing. And yeah, it's, I feel quite, it feels quite integral in a way that I'm quite proud of. Isn't it funny um, how your friends can be so open and so honest with you? Where they'd be like, "Oh, I didn't like your band. I hated your, hated your band, but uh, your acoustic solo stuff's pretty cool." Oh yeah, well, I, I don't know if you're familiar with a writer called Beans on Toast. In fact, he's just been in Australia recently. Right. Um, okay. He's he he was the guy who ran this bar in Ambuka. He tours as a folk singer now, and he was yeah. doing what he does before I was playing acoustic music. And and he very openly he was like, "Oh man, I, I went into the bar after the, we'd had the band meeting where we decided to break up, and I went in, and he was like, why the long face?'" And I said, "Oh." Oh, my band broke up and he went oh i hate your band that's great news <laughs> <laughs> um and he was like do the songs that you've been doing here do more of them and i was yeah. like um okay and then i did and you know and, and now i'm talking to you so oh um, uh, and i'm glad that oh, that's it's just so brutal sometimes hey what was the moment in your life where you know it started to work where things started to <laughs> started to happen with especially you know with the solo stuff yeah i mean <sighs> That's a good question. I th- I, I'm gonna. There are two things that immediately spring to mind. I remember, um, which are both around the same period of history. Actually. I did my first solo record, which I'm still proud of, but it's kind of slightly kind of shonky, naive, kind of like finding its feet, a skittish calf of a record, if you know what I mean. Um, and then um, we did a tour for that, and we were doing like 200 people a night, and that felt pretty cool. And then we did another tour for that, and when I said we, it was me and what is now the Sleeping Souls who had sort of come in at that point. Um, we did a second tour on the same record and sold fewer tickets everywhere we went. And I was like, ah, oh, maybe, maybe that was me. Maybe that was my moment in the sun. And then right around that moment, I was writing, and I wrote a song that's called I Need Proof Rock Before He Got Famous, which ended up being the first song on the next record. I just remember finishing that song and thinking, oh, this is like better. This feels like real grown-up songwriting. Not that I'm in any way designing that first record. I'm still proud of it, but it was just, it just felt like I'd kind of shifted gear as a writer in a way that I was really, that was quite exciting to me. Um, and then in the build-up to that second album, Love Iron Song being released, you know, think there was a, definitely a sense that pe- word was spreading, should we say. And I remember I had this gig that was literally in like a motorway service station uh, that had a bowling alley yeah. in the middle of sodding nowhere. Um, and, and I remember getting there in the afternoon and just being like, yeah, it's going to be one of those gigs. No, no <laughs> one's coming to this gig. Like, there's, it's just... Yeah. Like I had to get it because I didn't drive at the time. I had to get it like a half hour cab from a train station. It was just like, no one's coming in. It's literally an empty bit of motorway with a bowling alley by the side of it. And it, with a sort of, I think a three or four, 400 capacity kind of attic. Do you know what I mean? It's just yeah. the, the whole setup was just like, this is going to be awful. And then uh, I went and got some dinner. I came back and it was sold out and it was absolutely ah. round. And, and, and like, I remember 
And I was, this is the period of time when I was still, um, well, a, a lot of the time touring on my own and I was on my own. I didn't have anyone with me. And I remember kind of getting back to Penny and being like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> and, uh, and then I went on and started playing and like everybody knew all the words to every song. Wow. Kind of thing. And, it, and it was just like, oh, okay, this is interesting now, you know? And so that, that was an exciting time. It's the bowling alley. It's the moment at the bowling alley. And then all of a yeah. sudden you're playing at the, the Olympics. <laughs> I, mean, I mean it wasn't the next night <laughs> i was gonna say there was like, like scenes missing do you know what i mean like um yeah i mean I, I did then i mean even by that point i was at a point where i was attempting to tour full-time and like play as many shows as i could i think we did something like 280 shows no 291 shows in a year i think it was, was the most number wow. of shows i did in the year which is a lot you know um and uh you know so i was doing a lot of shows and you know, thereby hopefully honing my craft and putting out more records and all the rest. And then the Olympics thing did eventually roll around, but there was a fair amount of craft in the interim. With, with the Olympics, I've spoken to people on here who have played stadiums, who have done plenty of big gigs. But when you think about playing at the Olympics and playing in front of, like literally there's a billion people watching. Yeah. Well, well, I think it was more, apparently it was more like 250 million when we were playing because we were kind of like rounding up the first half before it, the big thing, which is still not still. an inconsiderable <laughs> yeah. number of people. Don't get me wrong. Um, I mean, it was, you know, the funny thing about it was, is it, well, I have also played stadium gigs that are gigs. Like we opened for Green Day for a time and, and, and we is that Wembley? Wembley yeah. Wembley Stadium. And the thing about that, that was a very different, that was amazing. And that was very different from the Olympics. The thing about the Olympics is it wasn't really a gig and like no one was there to see us. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's like, we were part of a show and I'm yeah. very proud to have been part of it. And it was really cool, but it wasn't like there was no one in front of us for like hundreds of meters. There was a, there was a flock of sheep immediately in front of us. <laughs> uh, and there was, there was people on the kind of in the, in the bank of seats on the far end of the stadium, but there was no one, you know, you, there was no energy to feed off. Do you know what yeah. I mean? There wasn't a front row or anything, but it was, I mean, you know, it was very strange, but like when I got asked to do it, it was just kind of like, eh, well, you know, how many times are you going to get asked this in a lifetime? So, uh, and we did it and it was a blast. Um, I think I was kind of, it's like, is this going to make my whole life explode? And it didn't really. It was cool. A few more people got on board and, and life rolled along. Hey, um, Aussie tour, you're going to be here in a, like literally, you're going to be here in a couple of weeks, like a week or two. Is that right? No, I know. It's, it's very exciting. And we've got the shows, the Carrot and Crows. We've got a couple of headliners as well. We've got Newcastle sold out. Finally going back to Tasmania, which I'm very excited about. Beautiful. Uh, and back to Darwin as well, which uh, I've played once before and had an awesome time. So, uh, but as I say, nudge, wink, nudge, wink, you know, maybe this isn't my only trip to the your part of the world in 2020. Uh, we're just going to put it out there that uh, Frank's going to be coming back with a band in. No, oh, no. <laughs> don't. You didn't hear it from me. <laughs> Frank, thanks so much for uh, for jumping on the podcast and discussing all these things. Uh, going to get out to, to a gig. It's going to be awesome. Awesome. Frank's going to be here in March, a couple of weeks' time. Thank you so much for jumping on the pod. Thanks, man. All the very best. There he is, Frank Turner. Lovely guy. If you want to catch him in action, go to frankturner.com. Uh, he'll be in Auckland on the 25th of March, but he's coming to Australia. I think the first show is on the 30th of March in Adelaide, 31st in Darwin. Uh, the 2nd of April in Hobart. He's also going to Melbourne on the 4th. He's going to be playing two nights later also in Melbourne, then Byron Bay on the 8th and Sydney on the 9th of April. Newcastle get their turn on the 10th. So check him out, Frank Turner. If you haven't heard of him already, what have you been doing? 
He's uh, he's one of the big names, one of the big names, especially in the acoustic punk scene. Check him out, Frank Turner. All right, it's time for this. Yes, the part of the show where you can write on in. Go to the streetpresspodcast.com forward slash letters. You write it, I'll read it. This week I got a letter from Lachlan. He says, get flight to Dubai on the show I want you to give them shit about never coming to Melbourne. Now, I've got to admit, Lockie, I didn't know about this band, Flight to Dubai. I'm guessing they're Australian, guessing they're from Sydney. Uh, really like them. They're actually really cool. I, I had a listen to Hail Damage and I've got Bully Up as well. Um, maybe I can swing them a message and see if they want to jump on the street press. Thank you for alerting me to a new band. If you want me to interview a band, go to the streetpresspodcast.com and there's also a request form there. Um, You can put it in. I always fire off an email trying to chase down anyone that someone wants me to interview. Sometimes I get a reply back. Sometimes I get a no, but that's life. Hey, the Ritzer Kids, we played a gig on a school night last Wednesday night. Uh, it was fantastic. We supported the Bennies. It was a great show. Uh, it was great to see uh, a bunch of faces out there on a Wednesday night. And it's a cool venue, Wombrel Surf Club. Hopefully we get to play there again one day soon. But it was a great show. Thanks for coming out if you were there. Uh, we are looking at locking in more gigs uh, coming up in the future. Um, the next day was very rough. I only got about three hours sleep but it was worth it in the name of punk rock. So, yeah, check us out, theritzykids.com. Also, if you want to support the podcast that supports the artist, memberships are now open for this podcast, The Street Press. Uh, We've got a few on there now at the moment, and the members area is open, and it's cool. You get to... uh, Jump on there. There's a few different things on there. You've got band marketing. I've done a few videos there. Uh, you can ask a question to artists coming up. It sort of gives away who is coming up on the show. Um, so if you don't want to see that, don't click on that part of the uh, of the of the website members area. And if you do become a member, it is four dollars a month. That's it. Four bucks a month. It's the uh, price of half a beer. Or it wouldn't even get me a coffee these days, would it? But yeah, $4 a month if you want to sign up. If you don't want to, that's cool. The uh, podcast will always be free. Just remember that. But yeah, for those who do sign up, you get a bunch of goodies. You get your name in the draw to win prizes every week. You get access to the members area, which is just open. Exclusive blog posts and 10% off merch. Now this week... The Bridge Hotel, our good friends in the inner west there in Roselle, giving us uh, a double pass to go and see Chasing the Train. That is this Sunday. It's one of the best Roots bands to come from right here. You've got Kevin Bennett on lead vocals, Kirk Laurent on slide, uh, Mark Meyer on the drums, Ian Lees on the bass. Going to be a great afternoon there at the Bridge Hotel. Uh, so I will be drawing that for members soon. All right, next week, another episode. Someone else from the music industry, someone I know very, very well. Uh, would love to have your ears here. Until then, ta-da. 